0: And uh, while she was strolling through, she stopped at a painting of Jesus' crucifixion. And while she was examining this painting, she was approached by another woman, a younger woman, who stopped and asked, who's that a picture of? First lady was completely floored by the question. She said, you're joking, right? To which the lady responded, no, should I know who that is? The first lady responded with, "Uh, yeah, yeah, you should. That's, that's Jesus. And this is a painting of his death. And the other woman stood there for a moment, painting for a while, and then simply responded with, how tragic. And then she left. Well, the first woman continued to stand there for a moment, just shocked by what had just happened. She was floored that a grown woman had never heard about Jesus. And after some time, she felt the urge to go and find the woman. And she frantically searched all throughout the art gallery and couldn't find her. So she began to talk to others there and began to describe the woman to her to see if there was anyone there who knew the woman. She finally found someone who did and got some contact information for this woman and she contacted her by phone. And when she got her on the phone, she explained who she was. She said, I'm sorry to bother you, but I failed to tell you the rest of the story about that painting you asked me about. She said, though Jesus' death was tragic, it is also glorious. Because that person you saw depicted in that painting as crucified, though he died, he is not still dead, but he is in fact alive. He has risen from the dead. I love that story because in that story, this woman goes to great lengths to let the other woman know that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. He has risen. And what we find as we read through God's book, the Bible is, we find that there are many writers all throughout the New Testament who go to great lengths to make this point as well. And John is no exception. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 20. We're going to be talking about knowing Jesus as resurrected. And what you find as you read John's account, of Jesus' resurrection, just like the account of his crucifixion that we talked about last week, what you find is John is doing more here than simply reporting some random historical facts. What he's doing is he is laying out the evidence for why Jesus is to be looked to and trusted and followed as the Christ, as the risen Lord, as our God and King. And folks, let me just say this right off the bat. This event here that we're going to talk about this morning is crucial. I've said this before, but everything hinges on this event right here, on Jesus' resurrection. I had a college professor once say, if they could only find that body, Christianity would be done away with. No, I wasn't a believer at the time, definitely wasn't very bold, you know, back then to speak up. I like to think that my response to that professor today would be something like this. Yeah, but they haven't found the body, so what should that tell us? Folks, the fact that the tomb is empty makes all the difference in the world. Because the tomb is empty. Because we believe that Christ is risen. If that is true, everything about Christ is validated. Everything about this Bible we have is substantiated. Everything about what we believe as Christians is authenticated if Christ has risen. I had a, a pastor once say, I heard a pastor once say it like this. He said, if the tomb is occupied... Nothing really matters. But if it's not, if it's empty, then Christ is the only one who does matter. And John understands this, which is why he goes to great lengths to show us evidence for Jesus' resurrection. The first piece of evidence he gives us is, he mentions here, unlikely witnesses. This is the first piece of evidence that we have here of the resurrection, unlikely witnesses. Look at John chapter 20, verses 1 through 2. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Let's stop there for a moment. So notice what we have here. Jesus has died, and he's been buried, and on the first day of the week, on a Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the place where Jesus had been buried. Now why? Why does she go there? Well, Mark helps us answer this in his gospel, chapter 16, verse 1. Mark 16, verse 1. Listen to what Mark tells us. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Siloam brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. First notice here that Mark tells us that there's more than one woman who goes to the tomb. So Mary is not alone. She is accompanied by Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. Now let me tell you something here. Some people believe this contradicts, these two accounts do. In no way do they contradict. They're just telling the same story, giving different details. We do that all the time, don't we? If you and I were telling the same story, we would emphasize different things. And John and Mark do this. John is is just focusing upon Mary, but he never mentions that she's alone. And and Mark mentions all three ladies. So three ladies here. And then notice that Mark tells us why they went. He says they went to the tomb to bring spices to go and anoint Jesus' body with these spices. Now that sounds strange, doesn't it, to us? foreign to us, but not in this day. This was a customary practice in this day. In this day in the first century when someone died and was buried, people would go and they would anoint the body with spices and they did this to honor the one who had passed. So Mary and some of these other women, they get up and they go to the tomb. And my guess is they're hoping someone is going to be there to remove the stone so that they can enter in and go anoint Jesus' body with spices. Now, there's something very important I want you to understand here, and it's this. Mary and these other women were going to the tomb expecting to see Jesus in it. Okay? They were not looking for a risen Christ. Jesus to still be in the tomb, and they were expecting to find his dead body there. That's what they were expecting. That's why they had spices with them. They're going to anoint Jesus' dead body with spices. But notice, when they get there, The stone is already rolled away, and the body is gone. And notice how they react. This is also telling. Look at John 20, verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John, by the way. So she runs to Peter and John and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Think about what we have here. When they come to the tomb and see that it's empty, do they say, yay, a resurrection? We were hoping this would happen. Is that their response? No. Mary says, someone has taken the body. Someone's taken Jesus. To Mary, that's the only logical explanation for the empty tomb. So again, notice that Mary and the others were not looking for and anticipating a resurrection. When she comes to the empty, she still thinks Jesus is dead somewhere. She is convinced that someone has taken his body somewhere else. Listen to what she says. She says, we don't know where they've laid him. She's picturing him laid out somewhere else. Now, why is this important for me to point out? Well, I'll tell you. Because this is the exact way many would respond today. When it comes to the miracles of the Christian faith, like healing and resurrections and the virgin birth, many respond like Mary and others do in this story initially. They think, well, obviously, there is a logical explanation here. Many in our world today, they reason in this way. They say, we live in a modern world and we're smart enough to know better. We know that things like resurrections just don't happen. But you know what? Many of these same skeptics in our day, they they often accuse those in the first century who reported these types of things to be uneducated and ignorant and superstitious people who did not think rad, rationally and logically and scientifically. But notice here that Mary and the others are they're they're thinking extremely logically and rationally here. When they approach the empty tomb, they're not quick to believe that a resurrection has occurred. They, like many today, think the only logical explanation is that someone has taken the body. But Mary, even though she's skeptical, she still leaves and she reports what she has found to Peter and John, but she shares with them her skepticism But notice all of this changes for Mary. A few verses down, look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Let's stop there. We see here that that Mary has returned to the tomb, and when she returned, she started crying. Why? Because she thinks someone's taken the body of Jesus, right? She's still convinced that he is dead, but notice what happens in verse 11. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. So she's telling the angels here, someone's taking the body of Jesus. Maybe you guys know, you know, she's still not convinced Verse 14, having said this, she turned around, saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned And said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She knows it's Jesus now. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Get this, verse 18, this is key. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. So this is the second time that Mary goes to the disciples. The first time, she reports empty tomb. The second time, she reports risen Lord. I've seen him. Now, folks, I want you to get this. In John's account, Mary is the first eyewitness of the empty tomb and of the risen Lord. Now, if John is making this story up to deceive people into believing that a resurrection has occurred, it makes no sense whatsoever for him to give us this testimony. And I'll tell you why. In the first century, in this culture, a woman's testimony was not considered legitimate and valid. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's a good thing. I think that's wrong, but that's just the way it was in the first century. And this is a very important detail in our story, because if that's true, and John is trying to trick people into believing in Jesus, then why would he give us this eyewitness account here of a testimony which would not be considered legitimate and valid? The first three witnesses of the empty tomb that the gospel writers give are ladies. And the first eyewitness to the risen Lord is a woman, and she is the one Christ sends back to announce his resurrection. Now, if this is a made-up story that John tells to convince people of a resurrection, it makes no sense here that he would include the eyewitness testimony of Mary. How many of y'all have ever told a story before? Be honest. Just five of you? That's it? Wow. Okay. <laughs> wow. I'm in a sacred room here. All right. Well we'll be honest. You ever played a trick on someone? Try tried to convince them of believing something that, that didn't happen? When you do that, you make up and you include details that are convincing and believable, right? So that your story will be received and believed. You don't include details that will immediately discredit your story. So back to John's account here. Why does he mention the testimony of of a witness that was not acknowledged, esteemed, and respected in that day? Here's the only answer I can come up with is because he's telling the truth. Because that's the way it happened. That's the only reason why John would tell this story in this way and include these testimonies. So that's the first piece of evidence, these unlikely witnesses. Another piece of evidence that John gives for the resurrection is the empty tomb. This is a big one. As we've said already, the first eyewitness to the empty tomb were these three ladies. Now let's look at the second group to visit the tomb. Look at verse 2. So Mary ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John again, by the way. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of their tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter. He's kind of bragging about it, did isn't he? And, And reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And when he went into the tomb, he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciples, the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead, then the disciples went back to their homes. So let's consider what we have here. First... Mary visits the empty tomb, and then she goes to Peter and John and tells that Jesus' body is gone, so they take off in a dead sprint to the tomb, and John's a bit faster, but when they they get there, they find the exact same thing. And I I want you to notice another very important thing here. Notice how detailed John is. He tells us, the reader, that he saw the linen cloth lying there, and he noticed that the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head was now lying, not with the linen cloth, but it was folded up and lying by itself. And some of you are thinking, why are you telling us this again? Big deal. What's that have to do with anything? Well, I'll tell you. Once again, context is key here. Remember that John is the one writing and he's giving us specific details of this experience exactly the way he remembered it. And he's telling us here, I was there. I remember it as if it was yesterday. I remember the linen cloths were lying in one place and the face cloth, which was on Jesus' head, was folded up and lying in another place. He's giving us these details exactly how he remembered it. He's saying, I was there. I remember it as if it was yesterday. John was there. He saw these things with his own eyes. Let's know what he says in 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus here which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was the Father, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. What John is saying here is this. We're not passing along fables here and fairy tales and stories when it comes to the person and work of Jesus. The things that we profess to you, we've seen with our own eyes. We've heard with our own ears. We've felt with our own hands. He says, we are eyewitnesses to these things. When the gospel writers give us these detailed accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry, Folks, they're not telling us made-up stories. By giving us these details of what happened, they're showing us, the reader, all the things that they witnessed. And they're reporting these things. And John says, I I, I saw these things with my own eyes. And he he says in John chapter 20, verse 8, that when he saw these things, when he witnessed the fact that the tomb was empty, he said, I saw and I believed. The empty tomb was enough for John, though he didn't understand the full significance of the resurrection, as it says in in verse 9. He tells us that he did look upon the situation with believing eyes. The full understanding of the significance of the resurrection would come later through the teachings of Christ during his post-resurrection ministry and, and, of course, through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. But notice here... That, that the empty tomb was, was convincing for John. And the empty tomb is a vital piece of evidence for the Christian faith. I told you in the introduction that I had a, a professor of mine in college who said if they could just find the body of Jesus, the Christian faith could be done away with. Now, though my professor was not a believer, he acknowledged the fact that the empty tomb is a key piece of evidence in favor of Christianity listen no matter what you believe about Christ you have to address the issue of the empty tomb you have to some have tried they argued that they went to the wrong tomb Uh, others argued that Jesus didn't really die the swoon theory that he fainted and then he was later revived when he was in the tomb and somehow snuck out the back of the cave I guess And others have reason, like Mary did initially, that someone. but all of these explanations have been explained away. They've all been picked apart. This eyewitness account here that John gives us thousands of years ago still stands strong today. John says, I saw the empty tomb with my own eyes. And he says here in verse 31 of chapter 20, he says that he has, has written these things down so that you, the reader, so that us, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in his name. So the empty tomb is strong evidence, isn't it, in favor of the resurrection. Third, notice that John also makes mention of various appearances of the Lord Jesus. Like we said earlier, when talking about the eyewitness account of of Mary Magdalene, not only did, did she see the empty tomb, But she also had an encounter with the risen Lord. And she was not the only one, right? Look at uh, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now notice here, That these appearances of Jesus, notice this, they were not isolated and limited to one or two people, were they? Here Jesus appears to a large group of his disciples, and we're told elsewhere that Jesus appeared to tons of people multiple times. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 4. He says, he, Jesus, was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, as Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have uh, fallen asleep. In this passage, Paul appeals to hundreds of credible eyewitnesses, and he mentions several by name. I mean, that's just an overwhelming amount of evidence that Paul gives us here, isn't it? And notice that he says most of whom are still alive you can go talk to them you know a dead eyewitness doesn't do you much good does it doesn't times courtroom dramas the old school perry mason or the newer school it's not really new new school law and order Uh, you know at times you'll have uh, corrupt people on there trying to trying to kill off the eyewitnesses because they know a dead eyewitness doesn't do you any good right Paul says you've got hundreds of eyewitnesses alive and well, and you can go ask them, and they'll tell you the exact same thing. And many of these eyewitnesses, they lived to the latter half of the first century. John was one of them. He was one of the youngest of the 12 and lived up until the end of the first century. So you had vocal eyewitnesses all throughout the first century sharing their stories of how they had seen the risen Christ. Can you imagine living in that day and hearing those testimonies. How many of you do like the History Channel? You watch the History Channel? You like the World War II documentaries where they, where they interview those who were there? How great would it be to watch a documentary of Jesus' death and resurrection with testimonies from eyewitnesses who were there? That's what they had in the first century. That's amazing. You had hundreds of eyewitnesses who had seen the risen Christ multiple times. Can you imagine being in church with them? I don't know about you, but I'd want to be in their small group. You know? i just let them talk. Tell your story. Think about it. You're sitting with them over dinner, and and they just begin to tell you about where they were and what they were doing when the risen Christ appeared to them. That's incredible. Well, in John chapter 20, verse 24 through 29, John tells us of one of these encounters. Let's look at it briefly. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Notice here that during Jesus' earlier appearance in verses 19 through 23, Thomas was not there. But the disciples who were, they tell him about it, but he's still skeptical. He doesn't believe their testimony. He says, unless I can see the mark of the nails and and place my finger into them, I will never believe. Thomas wanted evidence, didn't he? So he he says, unless I can see it with my own eyes and feel it with my own hands, I will never believe. Man, you talk about someone who has an outlook that mirrors the skeptics in our world today. That's Thomas. Thomas often gets singled out and gets a bad rap, but the truth of the matter is, most of the disciples did not believe until they saw the risen Christ with their own eyes. They They were skeptical at first. Remember, Mary was skeptical at first. So again here we see that we're not dealing with ignorant, uneducated, superstitious people, are we? These men and women were reasonable and and rational. Before seeing the empty tomb and encountering the risen Lord, they did not even entertain the idea of a resurrection. So Thomas is not the exception here. So at first he's skeptical, but notice how his tone changes when Jesus enters into the room in verse 26. Look at it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas is with them this time. Although the doors were locked... Jesus came and stood among them and, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Now of all the appearances, this one is the most convincing. Notice here that not only does Jesus appear to Thomas... But John tells us that Thomas felt the wounds of crucifixion. He felt his nail-scarred hands and the scar from his side where he was pierced through. And notice Thomas' response. It's one of the greatest confessions in all of Scripture. He says, my Lord and my God. I'd say Thomas is convinced, wouldn't you? So of all these eyewitness accounts, this is one of the more significant, but all of these give strong evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Well, we're not done. There's one final piece of evidence, one final proof that John gives for Jesus' resurrection. Notice he makes mention of the future church. In verse 29, Jesus alludes to the fact that there's going to be a future remnant of followers, a future group of believers who are going to believe in him, who are going to trust in him without seeing. Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He says that there's going to be a future group of believers who, though they have not seen, will believe. Believers, that's us. That's us. Did you know that our existence is proof of Jesus' resurrection? Did you know that? It's true. We don't often think about this, but it's true. The existence of the church gives strong evidence for the resurrection. If you're here this morning and Christ is your life, if He is alive and well living in and through you, if you are here and you are standing for Him today, If at one time you place your faith in the Lord Jesus and you're living by faith on a daily basis, if you're here and Christ is living in and through you, that is proof of the resurrection. That is proof that he has risen. A life lived for Christ, a life lived for the glory of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is proof that Jesus has risen. The application is simple, isn't it? We as believers are... To live that reality out. We're to live to prove that he is alive and well in us. Let me close with this. I want to I end just by asking you a simple question. What say you? You heard the evidence. What say you? Do you believe it or not? Did he rise or didn't he? Maybe you came in this morning skeptical. You're thinking to yourself, that's impossible. Dead people don't rise. If this is you, I want to I make this point once again. Think about this. Every person in our story today who approached that tomb expected to see Christ in it. But they didn't. They just didn't. They didn't. They thought death had defeated him, but they soon found out that Christ had in turn conquered death. They thought that death had put the stinger in Christ, but they soon discovered that he put the stinger in death. He overcame it. He defeated it. He conquered death with death. Then on the third day, the first day of the week, a Sunday, he rose again. Here we have John laying out this evidence for us and pleading with us, saying Christ told us these things were going to happen. He told us that he was from above. He told us that he was God who had come down to dwell among us, to accomplish salvation for us. He told us these things. And though at first we doubted, we have seen him for who he truly is, and we now believe. And John is calling for us to do the exact same thing. He's pleading with us who were not there, who did not see what he saw, to believe his testimony and to consider the evidence for Jesus' resurrection and believe and trust in him so that we too can have life in his name. So the question I leave you with this morning is this, what say you? Do you believe it? Do you believe in the resurrection? If you don't, I pray this very day, God would open your heart to this truth. And as a result, you would turn away from your life of sin and you would look to and trust in Christ alone for your salvation so that you might have life in his name. Let's pray.